Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. for having me in Calgary. Uh, I've been here many times over the years, so it's nice for me to come here and recognize so many people. And uh, I've even been in this space. But my memory of it is a little different. I think the last time I was in the space, I was over there. So I remember the doorway. Not that I wanted to escape or something. <laughs> um, it's also uh, touching for me to come here uh, back to a community that I've been to many times and uh, see that there are people who also now have things like kids <laughs> and houses and responsibilities. Or uh, they're just getting old. <laughs> like me. So tonight I want to explore together how yoga practice works uh, internally and also how we can put yoga to work externally uh, with the intention of starting to find ways of seeing our practice as beyond the dichotomy of inner and outer. The world we're living in uh, is in trouble. It's hard sometimes to wrap our minds around uh, what's happening in our environment and in our economy and uh, in the young people who are growing up in this environment and economy. And I think that if we can't pioneer new ways of thinking through our practice so that it can affect not just individual dukkha, individual distress, but also the distress in the world around us, then I think uh, yoga will be another fad. That's the theme. That's the hypothesis. And it requires a real deep investigation into what the core values and teachings are of these practices. Not just what we read about in books, not just what we hear about as tradition or lineage, but a lineage is only alive if it's wrestling with its own past, 
And if it's wrestling with the conditions that it's coming alive in, which are very different conditions than the ones that the tradition was born into. The lineage that's practiced here has roots all the way back to the Iron Age. But we're not in the Iron Age. So what parts of our practice can come alive here now and really affect change? And what in our culture now can influence the practice so that it's truly a living tradition and not just something exotic and imported from another culture, from another time, so that it can come alive in our society with uh, these genders and these faces and the issues that we all struggle with. And then you have a living tradition. So the first thing I want to explore is the practice of paying attention. Because if you can boil down anything in terms of the kind of singular, common uh, practice within various traditions, one thing we can say is that they all start with perception. How we're perceiving our experience. When you practice, the whole world comes to meet you. The inner world, in the form of sensations, in the form of uh, patterns of sensations, in the forms of attachment and aversion. And also, as you become more sensitive and open and free in your practice, the outer world comes to meet you with more intensity. When you inhale, we're told, you inhale all the way to the very top of your inhale. It's called antara kumbhaka, all the way to the very top. When you exhale, you exhale all the way to the very end of your exhale, which is called mulabandha. And as you do this, in ashtanga vinyasa yoga, you also listen to the quality of the sound of your breath. So you're taking your attention which I don't know if you've noticed this, but it wants to go anywhere else. (laughs) And you take your attention, which tries to stick to anything, and you bring it back to two things. The feeling of breathing, which we call prana and apana, and you also bring it back to the sound of the breath, so that you have something to return to other than the habits that the mind tends to spin in. Do you know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. This gives us really powerful tools that we can use every day. So that when in the day you have anxiety and you have loneliness or boredom, you can come back to something in your practice rather than go off in the old habits of distress and worrying and overthinking and judging and planning and jealousy and envy and competitiveness. In 2010, 
there was an amazing study done at Harvard University by uh, two guys named Killingsworth and Gilbert. Um, it's worth looking up. And the short version of the study is that they wanted to find out when people were totally engaged in an activity, so they were intentionally giving their attention to something, what state of mind they were in, compared to when they were mind-wandering. Have you heard of this thing called mind-wandering? Maybe it's happening right now. So it would not be possible to have a huge sample of people from, they wanted over 80 countries, and they wanted over something like 60 occupational groups. How could you ever do that? Well, they created an app. And the way the app works is it sends you notices throughout the day. And when it sends you a notice, it asks you a few questions like, what are you doing right now? Are you paying attention? And then there was a spectrum of uh, unhappy to happy. And what they discovered in 250,000 samples, something like 80,000 people, what they discovered was that 47% of the time, people's minds are wandering. 47%, for those of you who are not so good at math, is half. (laughs) Half of the time, people's minds are wandering. And what they also learned was that when people's minds were wandering, they chose on the scale unhappiness. In neuroscience, there's a new area of the brain that's uh, being studied called the default motor network, which sits uh, just behind the prefrontal cortex, right in the midline of the brain. And what they're studying in fMRI machines is that when people's attention is not engaged in what they're doing, that the, pre, the, the uh, default motor network lights up. Okay, So when you're not paying attention, this other part of the brain lights up, and this other part of the brain, which this study is saying is lit up 47% of the time, when it lights up, it creates self-reference. So when you're not paying attention, the part of the brain that creates a sense of self in the past or in the future lights up. Isn't that interesting? Which is saying that half the time we're not paying attention to what's actually happening. The result of that is we're changing the structure of the brain to focus more on ourselves. And I think we don't really need neuroscience to tell us this. But maybe we do. That most of the time, our attention is moving in habits. We're not really giving our attention, our creative engagement, to what's actually going on in our moment-to-moment experience. 
So when we have practices that bring our attention back to the present moment, back to what's actually going on, we're rewiring our brains. But let's keep in mind that according to Yoga 101, we're all interconnected. Remember that? But when our minds are wandering into the past, we don't experience ourselves as interconnected. And in our culture, this is happening more and more and more and more. And then if we think of this as like a collective brain, that brain that is causing self-reference, that brain that is thinking in terms of an individual atomized me, that this study is saying creates unhappiness, is also the same brain that's building the technology that's keeping us distracted. It's the same brain that's creating all of this information and entertainment technology that's keeping our culture distracted from what we really need to be paying attention to, from what's really important. So in a way, this practice that we all do at its simplest level is offering the possibility of teaching us how to give our attention. It's so powerful to just give your attention to what's really showing up. And socially, that's really hard to do. How many times do you look into the newspaper and you see the headlines, climate change, floods, and you think to yourself, you kind of like peek behind the article a little bit and then you close it. And you think, how could I, how could we really, if I really had to deal with what's actually going on in our society, I would just have to stop everything. You're not supposed to talk about this in Alberta. (laughs) But actually, that's not true. That if you really pay attention to what's going on, you have to double and triple your effort in your practice so that we can start to build a culture of awakening a culture that can wake up to what's really happening. So in a way, our personal practice of being awake to what's happening in moment-to-moment experience has the potential to be a cultural practice of embracing what's really going on in our lives. And it starts with your breathing, sensations in the body, different moods, your reactivity. And it continues with embracing the suffering and the distress that we see in and around us. Those two things are not different. How can those two things be different? So this is what really interests me these days. So, for years, I've been trying to retranslate the term yoga 
as a practice of intimacy. It's starting to stick, but it needs more traction. For all of us to recognize that the heart of this practice is to learn how to be intimate with what's happening in our moment-to-moment experience, and then to embrace what's happening and not to hold on to it. So how do we initiate contact with what's occurring? In other words, something arises like um, pain or grief, and you don't turn away from it. This is called bhakti yoga. This is the yoga of devotion to what's actually showing up. Not what you want to show up or what you wish would show up, but actually what's showing up in this moment. To turn towards it. To fully be intimate with what's happening. And then, as soon as that intimacy starts taking root, not to hold on to it. You can do this with reactivity in your own heart. You can do this with uncomfortable and comfortable sensations in the body. You can do this with people you love. You can do this with people you don't love. And you can do this with completely neutral people. Just people you don't have any strong feeling for. When you greet them, you fully meet them. You know what I'm talking about? It's so easy to just be indifferent. And when we're indifferent, the default motor network has kicked in. And very soon after indifference, we're off telling stories again. How many times have you practiced for an hour and you haven't been there at all? (laughs) Or maybe you haven't been there because you have an idea that's so strong about what you should be doing that's actually preventing you from really feeling what's happening in your own practice. So much of the time we do this. So when you inhale and exhale, this is a revolutionary practice. Because what you're doing is you're training your attention to come back to what's actually going on. And corporations really want your attention. Gandhi's definition of ahimsa or nonviolence was non-cooperation. We need to stretch the idea of non-cooperation by coming back into our lives, which begins with perception. His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, calls paying attention 
the ethics of restraint. Or sometimes he calls it secular ethics, which I think is a, is a brilliant translation. When you can't give attention, when you can't really be here for what's showing up, you're caught up in old narratives and you're creating a sense of self that separates. And that sense of self always has in it some anxiety. Because your sense of self is a construct. It's a story that you've created. And it's not even your fault. I shouldn't even say you've created it. Your, Your sense of self, like when I say, hi, I'm Michael. Well, I feel like a Michael. But part of that is not because I'm making the story of Michael. Part of it is wherever I go, people, like when I see my kids, they say, Dad or Michael, and I start to feel like Michael. But if I move through the world, always experiencing the world in relationship to Michael, I'm always going to feel some anxiety. And it's an existential anxiety because the Michael that I'm creating is impermanent, but also the Michael that I'm creating doesn't really exist. The way I perform my gender, the way I perform my name, the way I perform my work, all of that is socially constructed. All of that is influenced by my DNA and my ancestors. But when that habit is running the show, there's always distress. So when we talk about freedom in practice, freedom has to do with recognizing that in every moment you have a choice. Whether you're going to meet what's arising from the habit of reactivity, which often is fear or unconsciousness, or whether you can be more creatively engaged. Your true nature is your capacity for deep imagination. Your true nature is to be able to respond to each moment in an unrehearsed way. There's a wonderful old teacher named Hakwin that describes enlightenment. He says, it's like a bead rolling on a tray. Sudden, ready, and uninhibited. Can you picture that? Imagine walking with a tray with a bead on it. Your life is like a bead rolling on a tray. Sudden, ready, and uninhibited. Do you hear self-consciousness in that? Worry? Will they like me? In modern urban centers in North America, the age of puberty is changing and is now as young as nine years old. And this is because of diet and pollution. 
And so because the age of puberty is moving to nine, adolescence is the longest it's ever been in human history. The longest it's ever been in human history. And the part of your brain that makes ethical decisions, that is able to restrain yourself, is being developed over a much longer period of time. Because puberty is so long now. And I think many of you also might know that the mortality rate of adolescents in urban centers in North America is the highest it's ever been. And it's mortality related to drinking and driving, drug abuse, and all the things associated with what the Dalai Lama calls the ethics of restraint. Does this make sense? I wish I had like a PowerPoint so you could see that graph. (laughs) So it's so important that we model for young people what it means to really practice. What it means to feel boredom and not go to your iPad. What it means to be angry and not to act it out in a way that causes harm. And what it means to be angry and act it out when that's what's needed. Not to be indifferent or asleep. It's so popular now to teach yoga and mindfulness in schools. But actually, what kids really need is for adults to model for them what it means to really be engaged in our lives. Because in a decade, those are the people that are going to be running our country. And one of the things that adolescents really need to learn at this time when adolescence is becoming so long and the danger of being an adolescent is increasing is how to pay attention, how to feel what's going on in their lives, and how to delay gratification. How to be able to really want something and not go get it. That is an education of the heart and the body and society. There's so much longing for union but what we need to start to embody is union with longing. How to long for things and just see that as a projection of an insecure self. How to want and not feed the want. Just to feel want and its impermanence. And really to be intimate with want. Because we're always being sold something. 
It used to be that when you go home, you're not sold anything anymore. And then there was the radio, and then there was television, but now it's getting absurd. I was just in uh, Silicon Valley, and an engineer was explaining to me how on Facebook, if you take your mouse and you go searching in another browser with Facebook open, without even clicking on anything, they can record what you're looking at. It's just the beginning. (laughs) So what I'm trying to suggest is that really being able to be intimate with our lives in each and every moment is actually both healing at a personal level but also a political act. Because we're engaging in what's happening with more space for a creative response. Does that make sense? And that's what we're refining in our practice. That's nonviolence. That's satya, that's honesty. That's asteya. That's not taking. That's brahmacharya. Taking creative energy and really using it in a way that supports life. Life wants life to go on. But we have all these habits. And I want to stress that these habits, in in the yoga tradition, habits are called samskaras. It's actually an interesting word. Sang, sam, is where you get the word, the prefix in English, kam, like in community. And skara is where you get the word scar, which comes from the root kur, which is karma, which means to make. So samskara is... The, the scars that are made when actions come together. And in the yoga tradition, one of the brilliant ways of thinking about samskara, which is kind of a way of talking about memory, is that it's elastic. So that when, when there's memory, which is like genetics, right? every time you take an action, it affects the mind, the body, and the body politic, all at once. If you're bored, has anyone here been bored? (laughs) If you're bored, and you you don't know how to be with the feeling of boredom, and I use boredom tonight just because it just seems to be the thing no one's talking about. But where's boredom gone to? (laughs) Kids never see adults being bored anymore. And I think anybody here who does creative work knows that boredom is a really important part of the creative process. Because if you can't be in that threshold of boredom, you're not going to get, you're not going to drop in to something deeper than what you know. You're just going to stay up here managing stuff. So when you're bored, if you can't be with the boredom, then you're going to go buy ice cream and eat it. 
So then that sets up cognitively a new pathway so that the next time you feel boredom, this is like cognitive psychology 101, the next time you feel boredom, you're going to go for the ice cream. But the teaching of the samskaras is saying something a little bit deeper than that, which is because the samskaras are patterns that are not just in you, they're also cultural and ecological. When you go buy ice cream because you're bored, then we have to produce more cows to produce more ice cream. And it doesn't matter if the cows are Ben and Jerry's organic grass-fed cows. It's still a cow that's making ice cream that has to get shipped around the world. Sorry if any of you work for Ben and Jerry's. (laughs) In other words, if we were able to tolerate our boredom or our agitation or our irritability, then maybe we wouldn't have to consume so much. This is why yoga is going to become against the law in this country, because it's really bad for the gross national product. An addiction at bottom is an addiction to a story. And all of us are addicted to stories. And that's where we go when the default motor network turns on. That's what happens when we're not engaged. That's what happens when we're not awake. And our culture is addicted to stories. And all of us, I think, recognize in our hearts that our culture is telling a story about what's meaningful and what's successful and what we can do as an economy that is totally unsustainable. (coughs) And in a way, I think where left-wing politics has really failed is that I think sometimes that we don't believe that another story is possible. And I think where contemplative practice is so profound is that you learn how to be with stories as they come and go, and then you start to just see them as stories. And that you have an option of whether you're going to engage this story or that story, or a new story might emerge. But if you're just acting out these old stories about yourself and other people and your work and your life, you're sleeping. There is a Slovenian philosopher named Slavo Žižek who is on a tour now of North American universities critiquing yoga and Buddhism. He's saying that yoga and Buddhist practices are opiates of the masses because they make you turn inward and find peace inside yourself. And that's the perfect kind of practice for corporations to just keep on doing what they're doing because it creates passive people. I don't agree with him, but I think we should listen very carefully to his critique because it's very precise and it's aimed at us. Our practice is designed 
not to make us turn inward and become peaceful. That is a new colonial invention. Practice is designed to wake us up. And when you wake up, what you wake up to is the whole array of your life. You wake up to joy, and you also wake up to sadness. You become more intimate with states of peace, and you become more intimate with anxiety. The more free you are, the more you will feel other people's pain. And as this goes on over time, the only way to reconcile it is to roll up your sleeves and go to work and serve. And we all know that we're most happy when we're serving others. You can't get happy by yourself. Wait till you get to the seventh series. You finish it all by yourself, and you're still the same. Don't tell anybody that. (laughs) The practice doesn't happen in the seventh series. The practice happens every time you inhale and exhale, and you catch your reactivity, and you come back again. It has nothing to do with what series you're in. It has nothing to do with what room you're in. It has nothing to do with whether you're happy or you're not happy. Being free has nothing to do with how you feel. And I call this the adolescent phase of yoga. And what I mean by that is when you start intentionally deciding that being with what's actually showing up is more important than just trying to feel good all the time. Do you know what I'm talking about? A century ago, the thing that really oppressed people, especially women, was being good. I'm sure we see this in our grandparents especially our grandmothers, that they really inherited this oppressive cultural idea that you should be good. As vague as that sounds to us, I think we know, we know that. I feel like right now, a new idea taking over our culture that is just as oppressive is being happy. That everybody should be happy. It's kind of absurd. It's like if you have a little kid and they say, I want to be an astronaut, you should say, yeah, it's really interesting. You should be an astronaut. But when they get like around 12, you should say, like, you're not going to be an astronaut. <laughs> and our feel, I feel like our culture is dangling these fantasies of happiness that are increasing feelings of inadequacy. An increasing a feeling of loneliness. Oh my God, I'm 40, I don't have a kid yet, I'm going to be all alone eating cat food. 
But like how much of that upset is just you have internalized a story. You know. And then you're judging your whole life for it and the only way that thought goes is to sad. It's a dead end. So practice is about taking the dead end sign and moving it from the end of the dead end street all the way up to the beginning. Happiness is not the goal of practice. The goal of practice is freedom, which has nothing to do with happiness. Happiness is a byproduct of practice. It's a byproduct. It's not the goal of practice. The goal of practice, translated into contemporary terms, I would say is to be able to initiate relationship with what's here right in front of us, to embrace what's right in front of us with our whole heart, and then not to hold on to it. And to do that, Patanjali says, in a kshana. That's a kshana. Every moment. And then you start to see, oh, when... X arises, I can't, I can't initiate contact. I really just want to go somewhere else. Anywhere else but here. And then you know, because that's showing up, your practice is working. Right? Like as soon as you can see, oh, I really want to do something else, you've caught it. Your practice is working because you haven't gone to do the thing yet. You're right there in that space that we call tapas. That tension of opposites. I really want the ice cream. And instead, you just feel the raw sensation of what's actually going on. You know everyone's into raw diets now? But yogis are like way beyond that. We're into raw sensation. (laughs) So being able to feel sensation... Free of memory. And then to allow what we're feeling to just be a feeling. And then it passes away. Like everything else. This is so important. I have two kids. My youngest son is turning nine months. He's really small. (laughs) So um, when he was born, it made me really think more about what is this practice all about? And it reminded me that it's so important for all of us to continually re-examine our practice. Because then the practice is alive. So that our values and our actions are totally in line with each other. Totally in line with each other. 
there's a wonderful saying from the Zen tradition that the small retreat is to go into the mountains and practice with the forests and the rivers. And the big retreat is to disappear in the city. We all need the small retreat. We need solitude. We need silence. We need time to recharge. But that's the small retreat. The big retreat is then to roll up your sleeves and go back into your family. And if you look closely at your family, it's a mess. (laughs) (laughs) To go back into your own heart. And guess what happens if you look in your heart? It's a mess. Wherever you look, it's a mess. Patanjali has a practice he calls anupashana, which means uh, to see and to go on seeing and to go on seeing. Or one translation could be to see and to see again and to see again and to see again. Not to close your eyes in the face of difficulty. You know, for most people in this room, your problems are not in your hamstrings. <laughs> our problems are in our habits, especially our habits of perception. And our habits of perception show up in our relationships. So relationship is the key to deepening your yoga practice. And the tradition gives us so many tools for that. So it's worth looking deeply at what those tools are and employing them. But you don't want to use the wrong tool for the job. Like, if you're having difficulty in expressing yourself in relationship, you don't keep doing backbending. Like, that tool is not going to solve that other issue. So this is all to say that everything can be included in your contemplative practice, everything. And usually what we need to include is not the ingredients that just make us feel good all the time. What we really need to include is the place where we're wounded, the place where we're in pain, the place where we're completely confused the places where when they show up, we want to run away. And not just when that happens inside you, but also when it happens around us. What we're suffering from in our culture is an imagination that's been atrophied. When practice gets going, what happens is your imagination becomes much wider. So when difficulty shows up, you can hold it with a much bigger imagination. You can see it from many different perspectives. 
And our cultural imagination seems to be so flat. People say, oh, you can invent an app for anything, or we can send you know, a new kind of space satellite somewhere where we can't see it. Oh, that's really cool. But then if you say, so, and what's an alternative to capitalism? It's like, oh, you can't think about that. <laughs> so we're living at a time where our social and ecological and economic issues are all intertwined. And if our spiritual and contemplative practice can't offer a response to our social suffering, then the halls of those buildings will empty out, just like they've done with so many other religious institutions. So we need to keep this practice alive by putting it to work all the time in our lives and in our communities. And not for us, but for young people. People always say, we need to leave a better earth for our kids. But we also need to leave better kids for this planet. And maybe the best way to teach our kids and to inspire them is to model it. There was this very interesting study done uh, three years ago. Uh, Does everybody know the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Program uh, that John Kabat-Zinn helped create? It's an eight-week program um, where you learn uh, different forms of uh, mindfulness meditation. There's a yoga component. They've stopped calling it yoga, now they call it mindful movement because it attracts more research money. Um, So there was a really interesting study done where they wanted to know how come some people who take the MBSR program for eight weeks finish and continue meditating every day? And some people take the MBSR program and then they never meditate again. Why is that? It's an interesting question. What they discovered was that people who took the mindfulness-based stress reduction program and were taught by somebody who had a meditation practice continued meditating. And people who took the program and were taught by someone who didn't have a daily practice didn't continue. So then the group did another study where they went into a school with 11-year-olds. Okay, 50% boys, 50% girls. And they did a study where they had a meditation teacher, like a school teacher who also practiced meditation. <coughs> meditation teacher. And then they had a school teacher who didn't practice any meditation but read about meditation. And they had them both teach a class, like they split the class up. Both groups got the teacher. So the meditation teacher taught the group meditation practice and then taught the control group how to build an Egyptian sarcophagus, a life-size Egyptian sarcophagus. And then they had the person who wasn't a meditation practitioner teach meditation to the group 
And then to the control group, that same teacher who didn't have a meditation practice taught them how to build a life-size Egyptian sarcophagus. And they ran the study twice. Okay, so like one year, and then they did it again a whole other year. Each class had 30 students in them. It's a huge sample population. And you can probably guess what they discovered. Is that the best results, obviously, were the meditation t- was when the meditation teacher was teaching meditation. The second best result was when the meditation teacher was teaching about how to build an Egyptian sarcophagus. The other teacher, by the way, had studied Egyptian history. But actually, the kids described a reduction in anxiety and a reduction in stress over the school year when they were learning Egyptian history from the person who had a meditation practice. So this is all to say, you can look, you can look up these studies, they're really great. I wish I had a PowerPoint. Next time I'm going to have a PowerPoint and I'll show you these studies. But this is all to say that embodied practice gives us tools, not only for our own life, but tools that we can really offer to our society. So we have to go deeper in our practice to benefit others. And I don't just mean benefit others like you have to come out of your practice and you have to, uh, you know, start a new political party. But how we are day to day, the choices we make, how we communicate, how we use our body, how we listen, those are profound spiritual and political values that we can't separate. And then our practice is alive. The small retreat is really important, but the big retreat is to be anonymous in the city. This year, 80% of the world's population will be living in cities. And cities are great places to be part of interdependence. Because everything you do makes a difference. I'll stop here. Thank you very much. So I've said a lot. Um, what I'd like to do is just take a 10-minute break, um, go have a cigarette or whatever you need to do, <laughs> and then um, we can have a conversation about uh, what you've heard. Does that sound reasonable? Uh, let me say two things, though, before we have a break. One is I have an email list going around somewhere. Um, you can sign the email list if you want to receive my newsletter, which is twice a month. Um, and then also, I have a gift for everybody. It's like a loot. It's like a birthday party. <laughs> a- Angie's daughter Sloane today had a birthday. She had a birthday avocado with like tons of candles in it. And I'm like, oh, wasn't it just your birthday? Yeah. So it's not your birthday today? No. <laughs> 
Anyways, so happy birthday. Um, these are little cards. And uh, a woman named Carmen came to a talk I gave last year at New Year's. And she loved the talk so much that she made these cards, which is really cool. So what it is, is it's a card. <laughs> it has my website on it. But then when you turn it over, you can punch in a little code. And then it uploads onto your computer uh, a, the talk that I gave. And she made these like as a gift for people. So uh, I have 3,000, so I really <laughs> to give them away. So I'll just, I'll just like give them away, and, and you can take them. And, and you can take a few if you want, because they need to disappear. Okay, thank, thank you. <laughs>